Welcome to the Grace South Bay Church Podcast. I'm Matt Cabot, your host and elder at Grace South Bay. Each week we have a Q&A conversation with our pastors about their sermons. We talk theology and we get into the Bible. And we discuss how to live out our faith as Christians in the Silicon Valley and beyond. Today we continue our conversation on our new sermon series in James. In a sermon titled Wisdom, Pastor Bob looks at how to ask God for wisdom. And we'll discuss the kind of person who should not expect to receive anything from God. Because, you know, you don't want to be that kind of person. All that and more is on the table today as we dive into James chapter 1, verses 5 through 18. Glad you're with us. Let's dig in. So, Bob, the title of your sermon is Wisdom. Uh, Let's start with the definition. What is wisdom? You, you know, Matt, that's actually a hard, that's a hard question to answer. Uh, there's so many different uh, ideas and definitions out there. And if you noticed in my sermon, I defined it up front, but then at the end, I pointed out that wisdom is really simply a person, Jesus. Hmm. And and that's how Scripture talks about it, too. Even in the Old Testament, uh, wisdom is personified, and the role wisdom is given is similar to how the New Testament talks about the pre-incarnate Son as the Word, or Logos. Um, but, I mean, it, it's being a little too cute to say, well, wisdom is just Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's worth providing a definition as well. And my favorite professor from seminary um, it calls wisdom, and, and he defined it informed from the book of Proverbs, wisdom is the art of godly living, the art of godly living. And, and I think that's a great mm-hmm. definition, but... Like it. Godly living is also a little fuzzy for a lot of us to understand, and so that's why I went with my own uh, made-up, clunkier definition uh, that wisdom is the art of applying the appropriate truth to the appropriate situation at the appropriate time. And what I wanted to highlight is that wisdom is knowledge and character applied in action. Mm. You know, it's not static, and it's also situational. Uh, like Proverbs says, sometimes you should answer a fool, sometimes not. Hmm. How do you know the difference? Well, it takes wisdom. And, and we in Silicon Valley are great at book knowledge, and we're, I mean, you know, the, this whole economy is based on storing and sorting data. Mm-hmm. Um, wisdom, though, is situational and active, and I think that needs to be highlighted for us particularly here in Silicon Valley. So how much importance does the Bible in general place on wisdom? Incredible importance, and you know, it's interesting that it's not necessarily, you know, spoken uh, on the surface. Uh, But remember, Paul says that all Scripture is meant to make us wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, The legal codes given to God's people in Exodus and, and Deuteronomy primarily, these are incredibly short for Middle Eastern standards at the time. The point of Scripture was never to give instruction and direction for every situation. It was to teach God's people how to live with Him and enjoy Him and navigate the fallen world until Eden is opened back up to us. Hmm. So we are given standards, values, example stories, and then with the help of the Spirit, we're to figure out the rest. It's like, you know, when God brought all the animals to Adam to name, God sat back and watched Adam do it. Yeah. And and he didn't, you know, he wasn't like giving him hints or, you know, making him make changes, right? He that was that was part of God's enjoyment was seeing Adam and and you know what we can assume is watching humans 
uh, take what he's given them and and go for it. So he so, wasn't like cringing then, when right? Adam no. named something <laughs> platypus. <laughs> platypus. What Duck the world? Platypus. So I'm taking this back. <laughs> <laughs> so the point is, wisdom isn't passive. We are to use our full minds and usually bodies to engage wisdom and live wisely. And as we do that, we bring God glory, we bring ourselves joy, and we bring the world blessing. So why is James considered um, wisdom literature sometimes? You know, it, it's, it's not usually technically categorized as wisdom literature, but scholars d- discuss how close it is, how close it fits, uh, because James gives short, pithy instructions about a particular situation, like wealth, for instance, and then he moves on to the next subject very quickly. Uh, it's seemingly without a lot of connection. The instruction is often given in binary fashion with some vivid illustrations. Uh, James uses strong language and speaks in absolutes like wisdom literature of the time, uh, Jewish wisdom literature. And, and of course, we know this wasn't meant to be taken as absolutes. Wisdom literature um, comes in the form of important principles and values of, of how the world and how God usually works and how we are supposed to work. And this is, this is why Ecclesiastes and Job are helpful additions to Proverbs and Psalms in the Old Testament, because oftentimes the world doesn't work the way it's mm. supposed to, and oftentimes simply getting up in the morning and working hard, like Proverbs instructs, doesn't lead us to having you know all kinds of prosperity. So there are corrections even within the wisdom literature genre to those sort of absolute statements. Anyway, James fits very nicely into this Jewish wisdom genre. Now, the thing is, is that James keeps coming back to the same issues throughout his short letter. Particularly, he comes to uh, wealth, he comes to uh, speech, and he comes to coveting and desires. And, And so we pick up on this overarching theme behind all of this teaching, which is somewhat repetitive as he goes through it, and it's basically uh, chapter 1, verse 22, uh, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Of course, this is wisdom, right? This, is, this has similarities with wisdom literature, um, and, and the, the emphasis is on living, uh, not on thinking or understanding. But it's not simply a book of Proverbs, right? There, there, is, there is some linearity to it, there is a theme. There is a thesis statement. So I want to go back to something you said. So if if Proverbs then, and in wisdom literature in general, if we're not to take it um, absolutely, how should we interpret these kinds of passages? Well, again, this is. I mean, these are uh, principles that we are to use uh, in life, and and this is how God has designed the world to work when it isn't necessarily fully infested with sin. And nonetheless, because sin hasn't completely taken over the world and it's not completely broken, um, these principles do work um, much of the time. But what we're going to, like we're going to see um, this coming Sunday in the sermon on one twenty two, which I just mentioned, right, we're going to see James say, you know, this is true religion, uh, you know, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, and keeping oneself unstained from the world, right? Now, I mean, he says that like absolute, right? Yeah. As if, if you're not doing those things, you don't have true religion, and if you do those things and just those things, you have true religion. Right. Now, what what we learn from wisdom literature is that these are incredibly important, valuable components of what it is to be an authentic follower of God. 
Uh, the people who aren't doing these things are called to repentance, and you're never going to do these things perfectly. Um, and on the other hand, if you just do these things, you're missing out on a whole lot else of mm. what God calls you to. So you take it as wisdom in the sense of these are, um, you know, uh, undeniably important and valuable, and we can't lose these things. Um, but you don't take it as this uh, absolute truth statement. Well, I'm sorry about that. No problem. Did that come through? No, I just did a little bit ringing. I'm not sure okay. what that was. I don't know why that happened. All right, I apologize. I thought, I thought you had like an idea, like a light bulb went off, went ding. <laughs> God's like, I agree. <laughs> so uh, this passage, oh, go, go on. No, you no, no, that? you go. You yeah, go. okay. So that, that passage that we talked about this week says if we don't have wisdom, we should ask God who will give generously uh, to, to all of us, right? But there, yep. there are some conditions. What, what are those conditions? Well, I mean, the condition, the primary condition James gives is asking in faith without doubt. And I detect a corollary to that at the end of the current sermon passage in terms of knowing the God from whom you are asking wisdom, right? So it appears that if you are blaming God for your, you know, negative uh, circumstances, your situation, if you're assuming he is hostile toward you, um, that also will not result in you receiving the wisdom you need because you're still not asking from a whole heart. And so that's why I talk about it. ask from a whole heart, asking a wholehearted God. That's why I, that's why I did this sermon the way I did. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the, the point, or there's a, a, um, a word in that passage about doubt, and if we have, if we're a doubter, don't expect to get this from God. If we're double-minded, can you unpack all the, all of that information, the, the doubter, the unstable sure. person, double-minded? Sure, yeah. I mean, so, uh, of course, we read this, and it sounds like, well, if I have any doubt, then I should expect nothing from God, and He certainly yeah. won't answer my prayers or give me any wisdom. That's terrible. And, yeah, I mean, again, we're talking about how wisdom literature works and what we're supposed to get from it, and we're not supposed to necessarily get these absolute exclusive uh, ideas, right? Everyone who has ever lived besides Jesus has had doubt. So if it took 100% faith and no hint of doubt for God uh, to hear and answer our prayers, then we would be up a creek without a paddle. Yeah. And, and so it's important that we get this right, Matt, because Christians feel shame when they recognize doubt in themselves, or they can feel shame, right? Why do I have mm-hmm. this doubt? It doesn't make sense. I should be beyond this by now. And, and it feels shameful. And what does shame do to us? Shame drives us from relationships, Shame mm. makes us run and hide in fear, a fear of being discovered, right? So when we feel shame over our doubt, we run from the very person who can help us in our doubt, God, mm. right? So James isn't talking about honest doubt, people with imperfect faith. He's talking about double-minded, unstable people, people whose values and actions are constantly shifting, right? And double-minded means literally double-souled. Uh, S-O-U-L-E-D, double-souled, mm-hmm. a divided heart down to its core. I described it as a, a person having a settled position of serving their own agenda first. Whatever they hear from God, hey, I, I love God's input. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know, God's my co-pilot, I'm the pilot, and I'll take input from the co-pilot, but I'm still going to do what I want to do. And, you know, if, if that's your position when you're asking God for help and when you're asking God for wisdom— then you really shouldn't expect anything. 
And, and so to us, that's not really doubt or the way that we use the word doubt. That sounds very much like shallow faith, uh, very self-centered, and, and a relationship with God that's actually not taken very seriously. In that case, James says, I, I wouldn't expect anything from God if that's the position you're coming from. Mm-hmm. So can we expect to receive instruction from God if we're already willfully ignoring his other instructions? Yeah, I would, I would call this, um, you know, someone is in the position of practicing willful sin, and this is a very, very dan- uh, dangerous position to be in. You know, if you are consciously choosing sin, making provision for the flesh on an un- ongoing, uninterrupted basis, right, you're doing nothing to curb that, maybe all you have is this vague sense of discomfort at worst, um, then it will be very, very difficult to enjoy God and discern his will. This is what the Apostle John talks about as the one who practices sin, does not know God, does not love God. This is how Hebrews talks about the danger of drifting and falling away. Now, here's the thing. All of us are sinning all the time in some way. The point isn't how much we are sinning. The point isn't even if we are repeating the same sin. The point is whether or not there is repentance. Is there sorrow over our sin? Is there confession and request for forgiveness? Are there steps taken to turn from the sin right now in the present and also in the future, right? Are you making provision for the flesh or provision for the spirit? Are you sowing to the flesh or sowing to the spirit? So like Galatians says in chapter 6, we cannot enjoy sin. We can't go headlong into it when we have God's spirit, right? The spirit is at war with the flesh, so that we cannot do what we want to do. We will not enjoy sin. We will be conflicted. And if you are sinning without internal conflict, then you're in a very, very dangerous spot. And God, of course, still works in that situation, right? He's called all of us from death to life, right? He can rescue you out of it, but he doesn't owe it to you, and you absolutely cannot presume upon his grace. And so, you know, this is also what Paul warns his readers about in Romans 6. Maybe we should go on sinning so that God's grace may abound, right? May it never be. And that's an incredibly dangerous spot for any of us to be in. And Paul elsewhere says, work out your faith with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. Salvation, yeah. fear and trembling, absolutely. So uh, later in the passage, uh, we talk about God being the the giver of of perfect and good gifts. Mm -hmm. Why can we expect good things from God? Well, you know, God is simply and wholly good, right? He is the source of light and life. He is the highest good, the summum bonum. And, you know, more than that, uh, whatever bad we might deserve from God's justice and wrath has been absorbed by Jesus on the cross. God is good, and his goodness toward us has been confirmed, completed, perfected, right? These are all terms that James and Jesus both use confirmed, completed, perfected, perfected in and through Jesus. I mean, another way to think of this is sort of philosophically uh, minded, you know, if there is any good, there has to be something that is only good. And and the, the biblical answer to that um, philosophical quest is this personal God revealed in Scripture as the Father, Son, and Spirit. And, you know, and I mentioned the bad we might deserve from God's justice and wrath. In the end, Judgment of unrepentant sin is good too, right? God's justice is also good. It's it's not necessarily fun, right? And it's you know it's not painless, right? But in the end, we all want justice. Justice is good. 
Um, so whether God is acting in mercy or in justice, he is doing good. So there's a fundamental flaw in our view of God when we let ourselves accuse God or suspect God of wronging or hurting us, right? This is impossible uh, for those in Christ, right? He cannot wrong or hurt us um, because Christ is our covering, our atonement. For those outside of Christ, God doesn't wrong them. He gives them justice, which is good, right? So, So every good, every perfect gift comes from above, from our Father of lights. So how might we know if we have a deficient view of God? Well, I mean, that's obviously a very, very broad question, because there's, you know, who who doesn't have a slightly deficient view of God, right? right? Yeah, it's, it's, right. it's impossible. But <laughs> yeah. in the context of this passage, if we find ourselves resentful toward God or blaming God for our situation, or unenthused about the solution he gives to our situation, then we probably have a deficient view of God. Whenever we aren't seeing God as our Heavenly Father who loves us and delights to give us good things, our view of him is deficient. This is why the prayer Jesus taught us starts with our Father, right? And then right after giving us the prayer, he teaches that if earthly fathers give good gifts to their children, how much more will God in heaven give good gifts to us? So at the very beginning of our you know, approaching God in prayer, we are to recognize who he is and, and uh, recover our deficient view of God um, and, and, and address him as our father, right? He is good, and he gives us good things, and we can expect good things from him. Is God ever stingy? Well, not the way, certainly not the way we think of stingy, right? For us, stingy means not being generous. It's, it's right. wanting to hold stuff back for yourself. Um, you know, we might think that about God, or we might think he could be giving us more or doing something more for us out of his abundance, right? In fact, we presume that it costs God nothing to give us blessings. So why hold any back, right? Is he, you know, just kind of nasty, uh, you know, or takes, takes things overly personally, um, and this is one of the things that Genesis 1 and 2 is supposed to really teach us, that, that God is rich and abundant beyond imagination in his creative activity, right? He forms and fills the earth with bursting beauty, and the cap of his creation is humanity, so extravagantly created that man and woman can reflect God's image and rule his creation as his representatives. They can multiply. They can fill the earth. They can subdue it. They can carry on his creative project and do amazing things with these beautiful resources he's given. Now, this also includes the capacity to trash the project. And so what we might interpret as stinginess from God is simply the result of endowing humanity with real power and ability. Um, actually making, being able to, to do things with consequences. So, of course, thinking of God as stingy is very short-sighted and offensive. God gave us his greatest treasure, his son, right? He held nothing back from us. He gives us all things in Jesus. We have it all. All is ours, accessed by faith now, right? That's, that's how we can even now begin to enjoy everything as, as we look to Jesus in faith. Whatever God is withholding from us, from our perspective, is for our good, or will ultimately work for our good in the end. So can God's silence be good? Yes, definitely. Um, Sometimes God withholds his voice, even 
uh, the sense of his presence. And, and throughout the centuries, uh, believers have called this the dark night of the soul. Um, sometimes we are deeply cognizant of God's word and presence and power in our lives. Oftentimes he is really obscured. And, and those are times for us to grow and be stretched in our faith, to come to the end of ourselves and move beyond our limits or what we believe were our limits. When God is silent, it's like doing a massive sprint workout or running a marathon, right? We are going to have to endure beyond what we thought we could. And in so doing, we learn better how to endure. We learn what we're made of and, and that God has not been wasting his time with us. We find within ourselves spiritual resources that God has been building, and we grow them so that our enjoyment of and obedience to God will be greater in the future. We will grow in confidence that whatever comes upon us, God has prepared us for. So we learn the dignity and power of being made in God's image and being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. God's silence isn't fun, just like a marathon or a sprint workout isn't fun. But if it's happened to you before, then, then once you're in it, you can trust. There are good purposes, and there's a good outcome uh, coming out of this, much like there is in, in these hard workouts. Yeah, God is this amazing gift giver. He has blessed us abundantly. Uh, why do you think so many people have a negative view of God? You know, I, I think— um, Oftentimes that there's a misunderstanding or misinterpreting of, of circumstances and the broader world around us, right? We, we hold God responsible for our pain, suffering, sadness, loneliness, on and on. Or maybe we don't hold him responsible, but we assume he's indifferent and therefore not interested in our happiness or well-being. I, I think that's a, a lot of uh, the position uh, North American Christians are in, that you know God cares about this sort of uh, field and aspect of our lives, and he doesn't care about this other field or aspect, and we're kind of free to do what we want in, in that area. Um, and, and that's obviously a very deficient negative view of God. And if things are going pretty well, then we find God to be a killjoy, right? And he's interested in <laughs> restraining right. our enjoyment and pleasure of the world and of ourselves. Um, everything that is wrong—here's you know, here's the corrective to that. Everything that is wrong in our lives and the world is being addressed in Jesus Christ. And we can begin to know the redemption of those things now through faith in him. Our ultimate joy, pleasure, fulfillment come in communing with God through union with Christ— being led by his spirit. We can partake of the divine nature, getting caught up in the loving relationship within the Trinity. And rather than doing that, rather than walking by faith, we walk by sight and we miss the incredible love and grace God has for us and the miraculous opportunity of living every moment in his loving presence. Now, why do we do that? Right? Why, why would we pass that up? And the Bible's simple answer is one word, sin. In our sin, we want independence and autonomy to the point of self-destruction and non-existence. It's irrational. Don't, don't ask me to explain it further than that. It's clearly there. It's undeniable. It's in all of us. And from the perspective of sin, God either helps us get our way as our co-pilot, or he gets in the way of us getting mm. our way, which is why you know the next part of Jesus' prayer that he taught us is also so important, right? Hallowed be your name, parentheses, right. not my name, your kingdom come, parentheses, not my kingdom come. Your will be done, parentheses, not my will. Right? So it, it, it's, we are constantly having to put to death this sin nature in us that at its root wants self-rule, autonomy, independence. It's a lie. 
right? We deceive ourselves when we think we can have it, and we think that will make us happy. And so Jesus has taught us to continue to come to God as our loving Father, uh, whose will is better than ours. So let's say that uh, someone listening to this podcast is facing a situation where they need God's wisdom. What should they do? How should they do it? And what should they expect? <laughs> I mean, there there are books and books written about this. So let's see what we can do here. What can, what can Bob Crossland <laughs> say about this? <laughs> you know, and, and the way that I would want to talk about it is um, thinking first and foremost about timeline and urgency. These are these are important variables when it comes to you know how do we access wisdom and what what should we expect from God because. Sometimes moments come upon us that we weren't expecting, right? And this happens a lot, right? For myself, sometimes I end up in a conversation or a meeting that's – it's going to be very difficult pastorally, right? I'm trying to help someone see God or, or answer their questions or you know, explain to them something, and, you know, and they kind of come upon you. And, and in those moments, I'll often just – I'll offer up a quick prayer for wisdom under my breath. You know, what I'm asking for is, God, please be in this situation. I'm inviting him into it. I need his wisdom. And sometimes in those situations, I find myself feeling and speaking things that seem to come from outside of me. Mm. And, and this is God showing up in a powerful way. I don't necessarily expect that, though. What I expect is to use my heart and mind, my experience and knowledge of Scripture, faith working through love, and I offer that up for this particular situation, and I trust that God will use it for good. Right? I trust that God's appropriate wisdom will be given in some way, applied by God's Spirit. Right, God's will will be done. Right, and and I have to go forward into these situations, trusting that, asking Him to do that. So if we are um, caught by surprise in a moment, we have to trust that God is not caught by surprise by it. Right, God is not surprised. Right, and so therefore, if He's led us into this situation, then that means. He's given us all the resources necessary to deal with it. God has either prepared us to deal with the situation, or he will meet us in the moment and supply what is lacking. It's one of those two, right? God does not lead us into a position that we cannot handle or that he will not show up in, right? He does not lead us, he, he does not deliver us into evil or destruction. So this is the underlying truth. Again, getting back to the prayer, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one, Right? This is the underlying truth of what Jesus tries to teach his disciples about witnessing to him about the world, right? You know, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Spirit's going to show up. So we have to trust this. We have to trust that, that God has been doing good in our lives and giving us what we need, the abilities, the resources, the gifts, in order to handle what he allows to come our direction, or he will show up in that moment. Can now, you talk about—go ahead. No, can, no, you go. You go. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you if you could talk about the relationship between asking God for wisdom and waiting upon the Lord. Okay. All right. So so that, that gets me to this next point in terms of if you have more time, right, which is where waiting might come in. You know, right. this, is, this is not a, uh, you know, taken by surprise in the moment. You have more time. You see a situation coming. You're in the middle of— um, and you don't have to necessarily act immediately. Well, now you can spend more time in prayer. You can spend more time searching Scripture, right? And this is where repentant asking comes in that I talked about in the sermon. We expose our hearts to God. We ask for help. We explore in prayer. Why is this important to us? What, you know, what are my feelings about this? 
Um, why might this be important to you, God? What, you know, how might my response be important to you? We ask him to search us and reveal the darkness in us. We ask him to take the log out of our own eye, right? We can't necessarily take it out. God has to help us take it out. We do that in prayer, in spiritual disciplines. When I go through this process, I often find the answers I'm looking for while I'm praying. I find scripture coming to mind or biblical principles coming to mind that seem uh, to be the spirit working in and through my prayers. I often find a sense of peace settle in a- around a specific course of action. Even if I don't have to take any action for days or weeks, a sense of peace comes in and now I'm set. And, you know, I, that's the direction I'm going to go in. Also, if you have time, you, you should be speaking with people wise in the faith, right? So don't keep a big decision to yourself. Uh, and I'm, I'm often puzzled uh, when our people make big decisions that call for biblical wisdom, and they apparently didn't consult with any, anyone, or, you know, certainly not right. an, an elder or their pastor. But, but here's the thing, Matt, particularly when you're talking about waiting upon the Lord, that kind of thing— um, there comes a point when we do have to act, right? right? Yeah. And, and, and maybe a specific answer hasn't come, and in fact, maybe peace hasn't come, right? I mean, I think there are times when we are just not going to get that, that feeling of settled peace, but you still have to act. And then you go back to what I said before about these moments coming upon us. If God hasn't given you specific direction— Trust that he's given you everything you need to navigate this situation, or he will show up in it, right? So you apply your faith. You know that God is good, and he redeems in Jesus even our mistakes, right? So, so this is good news. This, this frees us to act, and, I, and what can happen for Christians is they get paralyzed if they don't have, you know, very, very specific direction or and they don't and that's not accompanied with a very very strong sense of peace these things don't always come and we can't use those as um uh necessary uh variables um before we act sometimes we simply have to act and and we do our best and we trust that that God is with us and working and loves us and redeems what we do and that i think is the, is a, is a mark of deep faith yeah, and going back to even what we talked about before, maybe someone's searching for an answer in the Bible. It may not say that directly, but back to the idea of principles, right? That's what wisdom's about. Absolutely, right. And and no matter what, I mean, just just starting with this, I mean, you know, what Scripture teaches throughout in terms of this drama of redemption, that God is good, uh, He is for us and not against us, and the greatest sign of that is him giving us his son, and now his spirit lives in us, and we are the temple of God. Like, just starting from sort of these cornerstones of theology should enable us to actually go through the world with hope and confidence, mm. being able to love other people, right, and, and give ourselves away to other people. I mean, just, just that, just being confident in those key uh, principles that Scripture teaches— will go a long way in enabling us to live wisely. Well, lots of good practical advice in this first chapter, and there's more to come, right? More to come. Okay, well, Bob, thank you so much for your time this morning. You bet. The title of Bob's sermon is Wisdom. It's the second sermon in our new series from the Letter of James. You can find that sermon and all our sermons and this podcast on iTunes and Spotify and on our website at gracesouthbay.com. You can also find a link on our website to ask questions for this podcast. 
We'd love to have you join us Sundays for in-person outdoor worship. We meet at 11 a.m. in the courtyard of Crossroads Bible Church in San Jose. Our space is limited to 100 people, so you have to sign up. Look for one of those sign-up emails from our pastors. If you're not getting those emails, we would encourage you to visit our website, again, gracesouthbay.com, click on the Connect button at the top, fill out a Connect card, and one of our pastors will reach out to you. You can also submit a prayer request using the prayer button at the top of our website. If you can't join us for in-person worship, we are live streaming our services on Facebook and YouTube. So join us at 11 or whenever it is convenient for you because you can access the service at any time afterwards. We know these times are challenging, so uh, let us know how we can care for you. We have pastors, elders, youth leaders, and women's care team ready to help. We're just an email or a phone call away. We'll be back next week with another episode of the GSB podcast, so stay tuned and stay healthy. We look forward to our next time together. Now, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks for listening.